Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. One of the recurring jokes we have at The Verge and on Decoder is that there's a life cycle moment for every YouTuber. Every YouTuber eventually makes a video where they talk about how mad they are at YouTube. Whether it's demonetization or copyright strikes or just the algorithm changing and audience numbers going down, YouTubers have to contend with a big platform that has a lot of power over their business. They often don't have the leverage to push back. So today I'm talking to Dave Wiskus, the CEO of two really interesting companies. One is called Standard, which is a management company for YouTubers, and the other is Nebula, an alternative paid streaming platform where YouTubers can post videos, take a direct cut of the revenue, and generally make work that might otherwise get lost on YouTube. Standard represents 160 creators. The company helps book sponsorship, it provides production support, they do merch deals, and most importantly, Dave can negotiate directly with YouTube on behalf of all 160 people if there are ever any problems. On the other side, those same creators can post their videos to Nebula, which as a paid service has very different economics than YouTube. It allows them to make videos for their subscribers that YouTube either wouldn't monetize or show to enough people. It's a small but growing platform that seems much more sustainable than the usual creator economy startup ideas that get pitched. But its growth means that Dave now manages 80 people between the two companies, including app engineers, salespeople, production people like motion graphic designers and composers, and more. And at the end of the day, it's all mostly owned by the creators themselves. So even if it all gets sold, those creators will get some of the profits. What really stood out to me in this conversation is that Dave's in the business of making things. This conversation was really grounded in the reality of the creator business as it exists today and how that real business can support real people. You'll hear it when we talk about Web3 and NFTs and all that stuff. Dave thinks it's bullshit, and he says so because it's not a business that he can depend on now. That's an important dynamic to think about and one for more platforms to take seriously. I think you're really going to like this conversation. Okay, Dave Wiskus, CEO of Standard and Nebula. Here we go. Dave Wiskus, you are the founder and CEO of Standard, which is a company that manages creators, and of Nebula, a streaming service for those creators. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you very much for having me. I am very excited to talk to you. Uh, for the listeners before the show, Dave and I have run in the same circles for years, but we're actually, this is the first time we're meeting. So this, this I think this is going to be a good episode. There's a lot of 
familiarity, but also who are you? I think it's going to be a good one. Um, let's start with some context. A few weeks ago, uh, CNN Plus announced that it was going to be shut down. It just shut itself down. In a response, you tweeted, our self-funded <laughs> indie streamer, Watch Nebula, is about to hit half a million paying subscribers. That's obviously a pretty wide dichotomy of things, right? CNN Plus, massive billion-dollar mm-hmm. investment. Your indie streaming service, Nebula, which is a, a paid service. Uh, there are not a lot of smaller creator platforms that work and that have grown as consistently as Nebula. Tell us what Nebula is and tell us why you think it's been working. Well, so Nebula is, we are sometimes, I guess, accused of being a YouTube competitor, which we don't see it that way at all. We're more like an expansion pack to YouTube. It's not education content, but education-ish. Like the kinds of things you would watch on YouTube, the kinds of creators you would watch on YouTube where you go to learn something or nerd out about something that you love, those creators all got together and built their own thing. And it's sort of a Netflix-y, Apple TV Plus-y sort of view of the world where we can take all of the things that were going out there onto YouTube and condense them here with no ads, post things early on our own platform. We have control of how it all runs. And then we can use the money that it makes to produce original content, like full-on original productions or exclusives, things that wouldn't necessarily work on YouTube and kind of go for a, a bit more of a premium vibe. Not far off from what people were already doing independently, individually on, say, Patreon, but in a a more condensed subscribe to the service, get all the things, and we can all share in the benefits together sort of a setup. How much does Nebula cost? Uh, Sort of depends on how you come in. We just launched Nebula Classes, which is our online courses addition to the the platform. And that kind of marks the, the moment where we're spending a lot more money on content, so we had to bring the price up a little bit. Right now, uh, list price is, I think, $10 a month, $100 a year. If you come in through one of the creators, like you just go to any creator page and then sign up, I think it's $8 a month or $80 a year. Or if you don't care about the classes bit, you can come in through uh, the Curiosity Stream bundle and then it kind of varies depending on their pricing. So that's really fascinating, right? You, you've now got tiered pricing, you've got different products inside of the platform. I feel like the beginning of this was very simple and that you were managing a bunch of creators, YouTube's economics were not necessarily great, and you could make your own platform. How long has that process been? The idea for Nebula came up I want to, uh, about three and a half years ago, like no, November-ish, about three and a half years ago. And it started as a company had reached out to us. One of the over-the-top streaming provider companies reached out to us saying, we would love for one particular creator to build a streaming service on our platform. And I looked at that, and I won't name the creator, but uh, I looked at Wait, this, like, that. Wait, name the company? That, uh, sure, if you want me to. Yeah. It was Vimeo. All right. Yeah, Vimeo reached out. Like, there's this one creator we really like. They should build a streaming platform. I'm like, that guy makes one video, like, every six months. <laughs> who Who's paying monthly? I mean, and he's got a Patreon. He does fine on Patreon. Like, what what is the incentive for anybody in this scenario to do a bunch of work to move to a new platform and give Vimeo money? In the email I was typing, the only way this would make any sense at all is if we had all of the creators building, oh, oh, we should do that. Yeah, That's not a bad idea. How far off are we on the technology? How long would this take to build? And so I kept talking to their team, like exploring the options, thinking it through. And uh, it, as it became clear that there, there really was a, a pretty, I don't want to say an easy, but a straightforward path. Like the technology was there. We wouldn't be paying for bandwidth. We'd be paying per user. So there wasn't an infinite costs without infinite revenue scenario. And we realized it would be 
relatively cheap to get it up and running and relatively cheap to keep it running forever. Years ago, there's a thing called Vessel that attempted to do something similar to what Nebula does. And they had a bunch of creators signed on. There's no equity or ownership. They just had creators signed on to make shows. Contracts were in place, content was being made, and they got bought by Verizon for about $50 million. And as soon as they got bought by Verizon, first thing Verizon did, shut the whole thing down. And so for the, the creators, there's, there's like a big L on the record now. There's this, this great big ugly, well, yeah, the last time we tried to do this, the whole thing collapsed. Not a good look for the creators, not a good look for the audience. And so coming into this, they were very concerned. If this thing collapses, what happens? If it fails, if it, if it goes away. So we had to put a lot of structures in place on the business side to make sure that we were accounting for that. But bottom line, knowing that we could even keep the thing, it would cost like, like two or three grand a month just to keep it running. So the optics would never be failure. The optics would just be like a slow trailing off. Not the worst thing in the world. And we all kind of agreed, all right, that's fine. So we, we built it up over, I think the next six months, got the 1.0 out the door and figured, well, we'll just see what happens from here. So I want to talk about that. I, want, I definitely want to talk about the structures that kind of protect creators. But to be a successful creator, you got to go get an audience, right? Like you, you have a big marketing start problem to get people to watch your stuff. The easiest way to do that is obviously to participate in the big platforms, whether that's YouTube, whether it was Vimeo at that time, whether it's the podcasting ecosystem. You started out managing creators on those platforms and running businesses for them. That's still your company standard. How did that work and how do Standard and Nebula play together? Standard, we, we sort of manage the business relationships for the creators, primarily sponsor bookings, that sort of thing. Uh, we do a lot of platform relationship development. Uh, we handle merch. We handle wait. It, uh, real content. quick, what, explain what platform relationship development is. Oh, so like for example, uh, I was up late last night arguing with the guy who runs the YouTube algorithm about how a thing <laughs> should work because he's he's a friend and we can just get on Discord and and argue about things. So if the creators have a problem with a video being demonetized, we we know the people to go to. If they have a problem with a video even up to and including like a glitch in the video and the file needs to be replaced. That's a really tough thing to do. And you have to be able to make a very strong case for it because we have the relationships. We can go to the right people and we can lobby for it. It doesn't guarantee what happened, but we can lobby for it. So anything that is a creator better understanding how the system works, a lot of it comes down to the algorithm itself or the functions around demonetization or content restriction, content ID, things that the creators feel are a very opaque black box and can be, as an independent creator, very scary. A lot of what we do with the platform relationships are working to, to help the creators understand how the things actually work and humanize YouTube to them. And then in the other direction to YouTube, lobbying on behalf of the creators. We represent 160 creators. So the, the weight that I can walk into that room with is a little bit different than any one individual creator can. So we sort of act as a I don't want to say a lobbying arm or a, a union, but kind of spiritually along those lines where you have a stronger position, you have more leverage when you work as a group. I, I feel like this I, this core idea behind Standard, right? You're going to bring together a bunch of creators. You're going to handle their, their business affairs, in particular, their sponsorship deals and their platform relationships. This is an idea that's been around for a while. I feel like every media company went through their multi-channel network phase, the MCN phase. <laughs> yeah. I, decoder, like maybe this is like way too in the weeds for the app, like regular decoder listener, but if 
the media people listening to decoder when i say mcn like they all broke out in hives right like every Mm -hmm. company tried to do this thing where you'd bundle up a bunch of channels vox media tried to do it um where you'd bundle up a bunch of channels you'd get some leverage over the youtubes of the world and you would get a better deal for yourself and mostly youtube is like too big to get leverage over and all the mcn deals fell apart why do you think you've been successful at standard exclusivity the creators that we represent, we represent exclusively. So for the folks on our roster, if you want to do deals with them, you have to go through us. And that is not about giving us or me as an individual power. It's about giving those creators power. If you want to do something with uh, Devin from Legal Eagle, you have to answer to all of the restrictions and all of the uh, requirements of how we do deals. And it's, it's all things that have been developed and designed over a course of years, seeing how bad actors or the shady sharks of the world will approach creators. Like the influencer world, the creator economy is filled with people who are looking to extract value. Seeing how they work, how they behave, um, we've developed uh, systems. Like, uh, for example, we will not sign a contract that requires us to do a make good if the video doesn't get enough views. We know that sponsor value is not determined by how many people saw the video. It's determined by conversions. So not getting enough views is not a good reason for somebody to have to do another video for free. We will not sign that. And one creator saying I won't do that means that the sponsor goes away. 160 of the biggest creators <laughs> saying they won't do that means the sponsor goes, okay, whatever you want, sir. And is that, was that how that plays out that you're, you're saying, oh yeah, this is what I've got. And if you want to do this, how do you get the creators to participate in that? Right? Like that, this is kind of the business structure question. You've got to get a bunch of people, 160 people to say, okay, we're going to give up some of the outs that would make us deals otherwise, Mm. but you've got to protect us. Like what does the protection look like? Uh, They will never sign any contract other than with us. So all of the documents that get signed with the sponsors, we handle that. And we have a master documents that the sponsor sign with us to govern how the relationship works. And then we have the contracts that we sign with the creators to be very transparent here. Our fiduciary responsibility always is to the creator. We are never working for both sides in every scenario all the time. 100% of the time uh, we represent the creator and the creator's interests. So when we sign a document with the sponsor, it's us making them say that they understand that this is how it works and this is what they're going to have to do if they want these things to happen. And uh, because of that, we can go to the creators and we can explain. We get performance data. If if the sponsor is going to run on your show, they have to tell us how well you performed. There's no magical mystery pricing where they come back and say, that was good, give us another one. And we say, pay us more. And they go, no. Like We're going to show them their own data and say, well, you wanted it to be this valuable, and it was, so you pay us this much money. And there's no room for argument. <laughs> uh, a lot of our philosophy is never negotiate for money, negotiate for data. If you negotiate for data, the money is just math makes everything cleaner. So because we have these structures in place, and frankly, because our contract with the creators is only a 30-day rolling contract, and because we have a strong reputation, it's really easy for the creators to look at our roster and look how we work, um, who we work with both on the creator side and on the sponsor side and the things that we've built, and uh, you know, take that first step into trusting us. Your contracts are only 30-day rolling contracts? Like, so at the end of 30 yeah, days, yeah. whatever creator can say, I'm out? Yeah. Yeah. As a rule in business and in life, like I just don't want to be in a relationship with somebody who doesn't want to be in a relationship with me. And I feel that locking somebody in, it's easy to get lazy. If I know that there's always a 30 day ticking clock, 
it means that I and my, at this point, I think 80 employees, we have to constantly be in a mode of proving our value. We have to earn it every day. And I think it's a good way to live. I think that's a good way to, it's, it's why we built Nebula. It's why we've expanded uh, beyond sponsorships into handling merch, into building the largest, as far as I'm aware, the largest production company in the world, specifically catering to YouTubers. Uh, it's why we, we built a content strategy team. It's why we built a syndication team. Because we know that along the way, we have to keep coming up with ways to add value for the folks that we work with, or eventually someone else will catch up with us. So that's really interesting, the way you've described your your functions, right? You've described a media company, but like any big media company has a bunch of core services at the middle, like content strategy or mm. platform relationships or whatever. And then it, usually the people who make this stuff work at the media company. The people who make this stuff for you do not work for you. They're your clients in a much more direct way. How do you think about that balance? Uh, I like them being my boss and not the other way around. Because the, the creators hold the, the cards here. And I think that as, as I mean, I, I hate to keep using the, the buzzwordy term, the creator economy, but it's for <laughs> simplification. As you look across the creator economy and the players who are coming into this space and the way they're approaching this space, there's a lot of old media people and there's a lot of ad media people and there's a lot of technology people. There's a lot of traditional talent people. Nobody really quite understands all of it. The talent people don't understand the tech. And the tech people don't understand the talent. And Hollywood doesn't understand anything. <laughs> and the, the, uh, the, the way these things kind of converge, I guess, we're in a position where we can see the mistakes that other people have made. The MCNs were all about gather up a bunch of channels, lock them up under our banner, and extract value for as long as possible. And their deal was that we would occasionally bring you sponsorships and you'll be happy to get them and we'll take a cut of those. And we also get a cut of your AdSense revenue. So all day, every day, you're making us money. And sometimes we bring you value. That is a very old media, traditional media way of looking at the world. The one nice thing about the talent agency structure, the talent management company structure, is that the, the inmates run the asylum a little bit more. The talent has the power. If the people who make the shows, the people who are putting all of the banger content on YouTube or on TikTok or Instagram or whatever, if those people all leave, then we have nothing. So for me, it's just a matter of like simply acknowledging that reality. They have that power. I mean, I, I can imagine a universe, and I think most companies who are in a similar position to us, uh, the MCNs or a lot of the agencies, they see that as a risk. They see that as an existential threat. We see it as that is the exact thing that gives us power. Those creators, if we represent them, we can either be afraid that they leave or we can use that energy to build better things to make sure that they don't want to leave and then take that exact same power imbalance that the bigger world doesn't necessarily recognize yet and do our best to um, hold the mirror up to the platforms to ensure that they recognize that the only reason people watch YouTube is for the videos. And maybe they should be a little bit nicer to the people who make them. It's a noble goal. I feel like I have to unpack the structure of standard <laughs> nebula here a little bit. Cause you said 80 people We're mostly talking about standard, which is the management company. Nebula mm -hmm. is the video streaming platform company. They're yeah. not the same company of those 80 people. How many are at standard and how many are at nebula and how does that all work? Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> 
It's weird. Uh, we're in this sort of like middle stage of history right now. We were the same company for a long time. And then last summer, our biggest sponsor partner, CuriosityStream, after uh, two years, two and a half years of hounding us, <laughs> uh, trying to like, hey, this thing's really cool. We'd love to buy in. We'd love to buy in. We finally hit a point where we realized that because of this bundle arrangement that we've had with them, they, for the last two and a half years or whatever it's been, all of our marketing, they've paid for. Every time one of our creators goes out and promotes the Curiosity Stream bundle, they're promoting Nebula. And so we have all of this awareness and we just hit half a million paid users. And it's because Curiosity Stream has been truly a partner to us the entire way, making sure that these creators are getting time on their dime to tell their audience about the thing. And it's all very mutually beneficial. But we sort of stopped and recognized that Nebula has potential to grow more. We didn't need the cash. We weren't desperate. We were, we were profitable. It was fine. But we knew that some some cash injection would be good. It meant that we could spend more on content development and try new kinds of marketing. We built classes out of that. We knew that the relationship, if we wanted to be respectful to the relationship investment that they had made, it's weird to think of a, a publicly traded company as a friend, but we, <laughs> no joke, we truly do see them that way. They've, they've been huge supporters of everything we do. Uh, it felt right to acknowledge their role in us building this. And they don't have a controlling stake. It's all very much on the up and up, and the creators still run everything. But it made sense to, to build the relationship out that way. And with that, Nebula gets spun off into its own company. Uh, at that point, the corporate structure of Nebula, you know, it's an LLC, we have to go do these other things, and we have to figure out, well, we have all of these standard employees, our entire engineering team, our content team, they're all standard employees. How do we do this? So where we are in the middle of, of this phase is Nebula simply contracts standard to do the development at cost. Mm -hmm. It's like a, you know, here's what we're doing to get from point A to point B sort of a thing. We recognize that those are all Nebula employees. The engineering team, it's all Nebula employees. We're just like, kind of like on the creator side, when we have a certain number of uh, 160 creators, we have leverage. Similarly, a, a lot of our employees are in the US and we do 401k and all of this stuff. And because we have 80 of them, we get a little bit more leverage than if we were two companies who had 40 each or whatever. So we're kind of navigating what the the exact right answer will be in the end, making sure that employees are all taken care of. And we can still behave as one team. We see ourselves as one team. There's just, you know, corporate structures and legal entities. It's needlessly <laughs> confusing, especially for our accounting team. But, uh, you know, we're trying to keep everything on the up and up. Okay, so there's 80 employees. I understand it's complicated as to where exactly they work between Standard and Nebula, but... Overall, how is it all structured? How is it organized? Uh, we have, let's see, across like department heads, people running individual departments, I think it's nine or 10. Oh God, somebody needs to be mad at me if I forgot them. I want to say we have about 30 people in engineering, around the same number of production people. And engineering meaning um, iOS development, Android development, uh, web front end, web back end, Roku. Uh, and then we have like a, a handful of project management and QA people. We have uh, around 30 production people, including motion graphics, editing, sound. We have a, an in-house composer. We have 3D people. We have thumbnail designers. Uh, so I think th around 30 of those folks in total, and then a small handful of content strategy people and syndication people, like carving up content, moving it onto other platforms, managing Facebook accounts for creators, things like that. 
The exact division, I don't know. I'd have to see an org chart. And even then, like we've been discussing lately what an org chart even means for us. Apparently there's a different version of an org chart. So instead of like top down, it kind of just goes off into different directions. <laughs> that that feels right. Uh, I always joke that this is fundamentally a podcast about org charts. So if you ever figure that out, you got to come back <laughs> uh, and tell I, me how that all works. <laughs> Uh, if you if you want, I, I realize this is an audio podcast, but if you'd like to mentally visualize our org chart, um, imagine a plate of spaghetti, and <laughs> I am the meatball. I don't know. I'm <laughs> You're just the meatball. <laughs> That's very good. We need to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the money. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. So standard, kind of in its purest form, right, represents a bunch of creators as talent, goes to the platforms, you know, you can lobby the platforms for different changes, you can go get ad deals, you have the leverage to not do the dirtiest possible ad deals and, you know, do good ones. But then you're also selling the videos to Nebula, right? Do you ever get in the point where Dave Whiskus, the CEO of Standard, is negotiating with Dave Whiskus, the CEO of, of Nebula? Uh, when you say selling the videos to Nebula, what do you mean? The basic structure of Nebula, as I understand it, is creators make videos, they put them on both platforms, YouTube and Nebula, but there's a rev share on Nebula that occurs for those creators. Yeah. Uh, there's also a structure in place that if Nebula is ever sold, 50% of the proceeds go to the creators as a pool. So uh, a form of what's called like shadow equity or phantom equity. It, it means that there's no tax implications today, but like if we sell a thing, we got to share the money. Yeah. Uh, the arrangement, like we don't pay licensing for the videos. Instead, there's that guarantee that like if this thing blows up, you're cut in. And the spirit of this is very simply, we're building it together. 
Mm-hmm. Nebula is literally creator owned in that standards cap table is 100% creator. There's like 30-ish creators total who own standard. And our operating agreement stipulates that only standard creators can own standard. On the, the Nebula side, there's the 50-50 uh, split monthly and in totality out to the creators. So there's both literal, it, literally it is creator owned and spiritually it's creator owned. The inmates run the asylum. So we see it as a partnership. The creators provide the videos and we build structures so those videos can make more money. And we provide the platform and the support. So we, we approach it not as like, how do we convince creators or how do we negotiate to them to put their videos on the thing? So I'm never really negotiating with myself. Mm-hmm. It's all one big conversation with the creators. And we discuss things very openly. We have a Slack channel with the creators where we specifically just talk about Nebula and the business and how we should build things. Before we built Nebula classes, we had a long talk with the creators about how should this work? What are the features that we care about? What kinds of classes do we want to make? And we didn't pull the trigger on building that until we had a real understanding of what it was they would want and a sense of assurance from ourselves that we could actually build that. And we needed to make sure that whatever pipeline we built, there'd be enough content over a period of time that we could live up to our, at least internal promise, and I think now external promise of one new class comes out every week. But that had to come out of the, the conversations with the creators, not just we go into a back room somewhere, dream up what it is, and then come out and, and hand down orders. Yeah. This all leads into the, the classic decoder question. How do you make decisions? It sounds like you're taking in a lot of input. You have a lot of stakeholders. You got well, one publicly traded company. You got a 160 creators. You got 30 creators on the cap table. You got a YouTube and brands off the distance. How are you managing that? How do you make decisions? It's a lot of conversations. It really comes down to relationships. This is a relationship business in every facet how am I building these relationships? How are these people being taken care of? And if we recognize that with sponsorships, what we're really selling isn't airtime on a show. What we're selling is access to the trust that the audience has in the creator. Okay, well, we can make better decisions and build better relationships off of that one piece of, of knowledge or I don't know, understanding. We can say that, okay, our philosophy is that we are here to protect that trust, not to sell ads. We're not here to sell sponsorships. We're here to keep the sponsors from ruining the show. And (laughs) if if at all possible, we're here to make sure that the sponsors add value to the show. And we've seen over the last several years that it went from being people grossed out about sponsorships to now if you run a CuriosityStream sponsorship or an Audible sponsorship or whatever it is, there's a prestige that comes with that. The audience sees that as you've leveled up. These audiences are very savvy and they they understand much more than I would have expected the way the business side of being a creator works. I think the transparency works in everyone's favor, but it is still, again, buzzword, but it it is still a parasocial relationship and we have to be respectful of that. And so if if we approach the, the sponsor relationships as guardians of trust, and if we approach the platform relationships as guardians of trust, that sounds like I'm glorifying our position. Um, but the, the, I guess what I'm trying to say here is the balance that needs to be struck is we know that at the end of the day, the sponsor makes more money if the audience trusts the creator. Mm-hmm. We know that at the end of the day, YouTube gets more views if the audience is happy. We know that Nebula gets more signups if the audience is happy. The common thread here is how do we make the audience happy? And so if we can get everybody on that same page of doing things that make the audience happy, we're just kind of like 
having conversations and and balancing needs, I guess. And uh, if, if we approach it as just simply a relationship business and how do we make sure that everyone can end up a winner, I'm not saying that's simple, but it, it helps to, I guess, simplify the way we think about it. The decision-making process is just talk to everyone and think a lot. It's a good one. Uh, I will tell you that it you, you need to get it into like a like an acronym or something so you can like sell a book. <laughs> That's what I've learned. From I need a too. tweetable version. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what are you going to put on your LinkedIn, man? Um, let's talk about winners and losers just for a second because I want to talk about how the RevShare works on Nebula. If I look at any of the big platforms, there are the big, big stars. There's the medium tail, I guess you would call it, that are doing okay, but you know they're, they're cranking every day just to do okay. And then there's the long tail people who make no money. For a platform like Nebula, you've got some big stars, you've got some people in the sort of middle tail. How do you make sure the, the rev split is equal? Right? Because you've, you've got half a million people paying somewhere between 10 and $12 a month. That's only a finite amount of money. How do you split that into an equitable split for all the creators on the platform? The rev share month over month is based on watch time. So there's, I love this question so much. There's so much to unpack here. <laughs> uh, I apologize if I go off a little bit. There's a lot in this. It's based on watch time and there's going to be winners. There's going to be losers. That's how life works. Uh, not like equity is not equality. We can't say everyone gets the same slice of pie here. Uh, different people contribute differently and there's nothing inherently good or bad about that. But what might surprise you is that the people you think are small often outperform the people that you would think are big. We have creators on YouTube who uh, will get 50,000 views a video, but make $10,000 per sponsorship. And we have people who will get a million or 2 million views per video who will only make $5,000 per sponsorship. Because views are not conversions. Audience size does not turn into money from sponsors. The sponsors, what they care about is how many people clicked the link and bought the thing. And if you've got 2 million people who don't buy a thing versus 50,000 people who all buy a thing, the 50,000 guy is just worth more. <laughs> his audience is more engaged. His audience is more excited. They're more attached. When that guy goes out and promotes something or talks about something he's working on, more of the audience activates. So what we see on Nebula is when creators are promoting, like, look, I've got a thing over here. Come check it out the audiences that are most activated or most excited, they come over and check it out. And some of those really big creators, they'll bring in about the same number of people to come check things out because maybe their views are primarily driven by news and search and uh, viral algorithmic views. So it really depends. Uh, I think that on the YouTube side, YouTube did something really interesting that I don't think they get enough credit for. And I, I find it strange as a, as a representative of creators to be out here talking about how great YouTube is. But I, I don't think that YouTube's position is, is fully understood yet. For the entirety of human history, until 17 years ago, there was no such thing as a middle-class content creator. There's never been a moment in time for people where somebody could wake up in the morning and go produce something that would be seen, uh, heard, consumed by an audience of potentially millions of people sustainably with no gatekeepers. That's brand new. And it's really cool. To do that, what you need is a discovery system. And YouTube's algorithm gets a lot of guff from creators, I think in some ways deservedly so, but they're constantly working on it. It is a, a system where, I mean, you, you know as well as anybody, if you put a podcast out there 
until you tell somebody about it, nobody listens. If you release a brand new podcast, your first 100,000, 10,000 listeners are people that you told about the show. Mm -hmm. On YouTube, you put out a video and your first million viewers might just be people who showed up. It's much more like being a store at a mall than it is uh, just, you know, releasing a, I don't know, an indie magazine and putting it up uh, in, in record stores or something. There's like a true discovery system. And so the way the audience is attached to individual creators will vary wildly by creator and really doesn't have much at all to do with the size of the audience. The equitable split of how people are making money on Nebula, it comes down to like, how excited did they make their audience about Nebula? And how good a job are they doing convincing that audience to go watch their stuff on Nebula? Are they releasing extra content? If that video contains snippets of an interview and you tell folks that if they go over to Nebula, they can watch the whole unedited interview, then you're probably going to get people coming over and watching more stuff on Nebula. And when that happens, you get more of the watch time split. And as more and more creators do that, the split, the percentage split will constantly be rebalancing. But if all of those people are coming over to Nebula and they're spending more time on Nebula and we've got all this retention, then, you know, revenue goes up, the pie gets bigger. So how do you decide, like you could add another 160 people to Nebula. You have to assume they're going to bring Nebula subscribers with them, right? How do you make that decision to say, okay, we want to sign up our 161st creator. We know they're going to add watch time to the denominator, but we have to increase the numerator as well. We sort of just trust the creators. If somebody comes to me and says, hey, there's this channel that I'm, I'm friends with the creator and they do really good stuff, I think they'd be a good fit, I take the call. If I get a cold email from a YouTuber saying, hey, I've got you know, 100,000 subscribers, I want to be on Nebula, I don't reply to those emails. Not because I want to be a jerk, not because I want to ignore those people, but because I just don't have a mechanism for vetting them. If the creators come to me and tell me about what they're watching, what they're excited about, they're the best filter system I could ever hope for. So if, a, if one of the creators who's, who's doing stuff on Nebula and, and owns a piece of Nebula, if they come to me and say, this person should be here too, I trust that that creator is smart enough to know that they should only be making recommendations if they're going to add value. And as long as, again, it all comes down to trust and relationships. If I trust that creator, then I don't have to think anymore about, is this a new person going to add value in like a clinical or, or cynical business sense? I only have to think about, is this person a good social fit? And is this somebody that we're going to be excited to have on the, the team, so to speak? You got to have some model where you're like, I'm going to bring somebody over. We're going to add them to the team. Our watch time, some watch time will go to them. So they will get some money out of the pie, but they have to bring X number of subscribers to the mix to balance that out and make it equal. Otherwise, you could just have the farthest way you could think about this, which would probably never happen, but just for the sake of the argument, you add a super popular creator that brings no subscribers and they take all the money. This is what I call the Mr. Beast problem. <laughs> well, <laughs> what is the Mr. Beast problem? Uh, so you get Mr. Beast. He's the, the biggest creator on YouTube. And what happens if uh, he were to start putting stuff on Nebula and his audience, his, his army of 100 million teenagers all starts watching everything on Nebula, but not paying? Well, how would that happen? How could they possibly watch his stuff on Nebula without paying us? Well, I mean, uh, it's... You know. it, it, the Pirate Bay exists, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe <laughs> everyone who currently has, maybe the half million people that are currently paying for Nebula subscriptions all decide that they're only going to watch Mr. Beast. 
But if that's all they want, then the audience is voting with their time. But that is a potential danger, right? That the army of teenagers probably doesn't have as much disposable income. So you add the content to your platform. The army of teenagers says, whatever, we're going to wait a day to watch it with ads on YouTube. And then the neb- the paying Nebula audience all just watches that stuff early. And you, you've ended up in that bad position. Maybe that's not a realistic concern. I'm just saying from the way you're describing the model, it's a potential concern. Uh, maybe, maybe. Um, I'll be honest and say that we just haven't really thought through that scenario. The At least our audiences don't necessarily work that way. Uh, I guess there's no perfect model. Um, I, I'm sort of thinking through it now. Point of clarification. I don't know if this needs clarification, but you know, just for the record. The value proposition in our mind for somebody watching the video on Nebula versus on YouTube or watching things on Nebula versus YouTube, uh, getting the video early and without ads is something. But just being YouTube premium premium isn't the most exciting thing in the world for us. <laughs> that is a feature, but I don't think of it as really being our core feature. Mm-hmm. We're spending millions of dollars this year on original content. We've got these classes. We've got fully produced original productions, documentaries that never would have been made, a series that never would have been made on YouTube. And we we think that over time, it's more and more interesting for the audience to come get that stuff than it is to just watch the video early. Again, that's a feature, and I think it's a big one. But if we look at Netflix as a template, and we can only do that for so long, <laughs> but in the early days for Netflix, they were all about catalog content and slowly adding originals. People came over because you could watch all of the movies on Netflix. And even that was built off of a, a system where they were literally mailing you DVDs. So they, they said, okay, we're going we're gonna to put all this stuff onto servers. You can watch it on your TV over the internet or on your computer over the internet. And here's all the stuff. And you didn't go there because they had Stranger Things and Squid Game. Those things didn't exist yet. You went there because they had, I don't know, friends. And our early days are a similar position. Mm-hmm. We don't have we don't have Stranger Things. We don't have Severance. We don't have you know, Squid Game or Peacemaker. I don't know. Yeah, uh, you should get Peacemaker. The, the, <laughs> I'll make <laughs> some calls. Great. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't have like the big obvious collection of hits. But if you look at switching the model early days, we have to kind of Netflix it up. And we recognize that that's the position that we've been in going forward. uh, I think Netflix is a terrible role model. I think the reason that Netflix is bleeding subscribers and bleeding money and now bleeding staff is because they don't value the creators. Their business model is to take billions of dollars, go out and produce every noodle of spaghetti and throw them all at the wall. And anything that doesn't stick gets canceled. And that has worked for years but it doesn't scale. And remember a couple of years ago when we all laughed at Apple TV plus because they only had like five shows jump forward a couple of years. You know what? Those five shows are excellent. Every single one of them. And every time they put something new on Apple TV plus it's excellent. And you can laugh that they don't have the biggest library in the world. It's actually pretty decent now, but you know that anytime they put something up, it's, it's at least worth trying. Severance is amazing. Ted Lasso universally loved. Meanwhile, what does Netflix have? They're scrambling to get a season two of Squid Game because they, they need a hit. I feel like I have, they have to, Stranger Things. I, I'm very much obligated to disclose at this point that uh, I'm the EP of a Netflix show that's coming out in a couple of weeks. But that's neither here nor there. We just made the show. It's great. My responsibility to that show was uh, helping to predict the future. So I feel good about that. That's your disclosure. Here's my question about that, though. Right. That, that Netflix curve is well known. The catalog content. You, you buy a bunch of catalog content on the cheap. You monetize it uh, against access, basically. People couldn't get 
friends easily before you paid Netflix, you get friends really easily. And then you spend your profits on originals and hopefully lock people in. Like that was the model for Netflix. It is in many ways, the models for everyone else, except Apple TV, which has no catalog content. They're just buying the premium stuff, but they make the iPhone. So I feel like their economics are different. Um, yeah. You're kind of describing the same thing, right? You're, you're saying we're going to get a bunch of YouTube catalog content that you can pay for, maybe window it early, but that's just the basics. What we're going to do is spend money on production for creators. And then you keep saying this phrase that I want to push on, on things that might not work on YouTube, right? <laughs> and yeah. that to me is a pretty loaded phrase. It implies a lot of things. Um, you want some it, examples? Yeah. Battle of Britain. Real Engineering made a series called Battle of Britain that's airing now, um, and it's a follow-up to a series that he made on Nebula called Logistics of D-Day. This is content about wars. There's no graphic violence shown, but things blow up. There are weapons. There's discussion of death. There's discussion of violence. Those videos on YouTube would be demonetized. They would be age-restricted. They would not make money. It wouldn't work on YouTube because the platform itself is, uh, and I think rightfully so, conscientious of how things are presented to the audience. They have to assume the widest possible collection of human beings seeing this, and that includes children. And I understand mm -hmm. that. I have no, I'm not throwing shade. I'll throw a little bit of shade at, they're also very concerned with what advertisers will enjoy. And they don't really do a lot of work to find advertisers who are more interested in that kind of content. Uh, fair enough, right? But that that is a show that Brian from Real Engineering, he did upload the first episode of Logistics of D-Day to YouTube to promote the whole series. And it was demonetized and it's made no money. So he spent, I don't know if I can say how much money he spent on that. A lot of money was spent on that show. <laughs> and if it the, the first episode went to YouTube and it's made $0, he would have canceled the entire project and he'd be out a very large sum of money. It just wouldn't work. Is that show profitable on Nebula? Yes. Okay. There's a fun economics thing that has happened here. Uh, I've, I've talked about and, and hinted at pieces of the relationship that we have with CuriosityStream. They pay us to go promote Nebula. So this, <laughs> this, this whole uh, podcast now is a secret ad for CuriosityStream. <laughs> if you sign up for the bundle, you get Nebula included. So at the end of the videos, the creators will say, you know, I've got this original series or I've got this thing or this really cool, interesting thing happening. This platform that I'm helping to build, me and a bunch of creators got together. It's called Nebula and you get it when included when you sign up for CuriosityStream. They have been paying for these sponsorships for two and a half, a little over two and a half years now. And when people go sign up, the creators make money. They're, the sponsor rates are based on how many people went and signed up for the last one. And when we're promoting something that is so deeply rooted in the, the, the parasocial connection, the audience wants more of the things that these creators are making. We end up in a situation where more people go sign up. Sponsor rates go up. We have one creator who was making $5,000 per video. His most recent video was $300,000 his sponsor rate went up that much based on actual performance, real numbers. Because he was converting into that many sales of whatever product was being advertised. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. He was sending that many people over to CuriosityStream that it was worth $300,000. He was at $5,000 less than a year ago. He just leaned hard on, on doing stuff on Nebula that was exclusive. More people went and signed up. So the $300,000 
more than covers the production of that show dramatically more than covers the production of the show that he's doing as a Nebula original. And because the actual production work is handled by uh, our studios team, like we get a cut of that so that we can pay the people. The whole machine is kind of designed where the, the economics, um, I don't want to say this, we have a whole machine to make these things and a machine to make sure that all of the different parts of the machine are making money. Yeah. I feel like this would be a good time for this podcast to be a video podcast. So I could draw this on a whiteboard, but I'm going to try. Uh, it sounds <laughs> like there's two different revenue things happening here. So you're the creator on YouTube. Just correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong as I walk through this. Sure. You're the creator on YouTube. You've got a reasonably sized YouTube audience. You can say, hey, in the, in the middle of my video, look at this uh, phone case or whatever, and that'll make you some money. And standard will help you get a better deal there, right? That's pretty normal. Yeah. Everyone understands that. My advice would be to do it at the end of the video, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then you can say at the end of the video, hey, go sign up for my stuff on Nebula. And when that happens, Curiosity Stream pays a conversion fee. That seems to be what's happening there. And that can make you $300,000. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when the videos are on Nebula and people watch them, there's a subscription fee that gets doled out based on a, a watch time calculation right. as well. So that's three ways that creators are making money with Standard and, and Nebula and CuriosityStream. Yeah. I'll pay you to make a thing. I'll pay you to promote that thing. I'll pay you based on how many people watch the thing. And then you own equity in the platform. So four, you're getting paid four times over if Nebula ever sells. But I think my big question is just the economics, uh, the normal economics of a Hollywood movie, for example. It's very simple. You get a bunch of financiers together. You say, we're going to get Tom Cruise. We're going to get a fighter jet. Or something good will happen here. Right? <laughs> you, you front a bunch of money to pay for this thing. And then you've got an asset. Right? Mm -hmm. And then the asset, you sell it to you know different markets, different platforms. You window it at the end to HBO. And at the final, at the end of the road, TNT is running your asset with ads in the middle, right? And that's like the last bit of money you can eke out. This doesn't sound like that model at all. Like the asset is like the video itself does not seem like the thing that is being valued. It seems like a bunch of conversions along the way. And I'm just, I'm trying to push on that because every time I have one of these creator economy conversations, I come back to... Well, how much is the asset itself worth? How much is a song worth for Spotify? How much is a video worth for YouTube? How much is a video worth for you? How much does a car cost? It really depends. How how big is the thing? How well does it perform? I guess cars perform. Um, you know, what's it made out of? There's a, a bunch of different factors. Who's the creator behind it? How many people are likely to come over and watch it? Is this something that people are still going to be watching in a year? When we spend money to produce an original anything... We're spending money and we have to decide, is this an amount of money that is going to be returned to us in some way? The economic machine isn't as simple as people pay us for the service, therefore we have money coming in and we can spend accordingly. It is more, I think, beautifully complex than that. Um, there's the relationship with the sponsor, CuriosityStream, and Standard makes a commission on the sponsor rate. So standard as a company is, is making a cut of that fee that comes in. So we have incentive to do things, to invest in making that fee go up. Then we get every month, CuriosityStream pays us based on the number of active users who are in through the bundle. So we have an incentive for that number to go up. So there's multiple ways in which each piece of 
uh, content, for lack of a better word, gets uh, uh, valued, there's there's different ways for those things to make us money. There's different ways for the creator to make money off of each of those. And depending on the structure of any one given thing, Standard or Nebula may be in a commission chain or a licensing chain on any one of those things. If we make sure that at the end of the day, it all comes down to the creator needs to be making more money, the creator needs to be seeing more of the value. One thing that might confuse you even further is those videos, the assets, we don't own them. The creators do. We will pay money. We will provide funding for a creator to go out and make something that they own. I don't know of anyone in Hollywood who does that. How do you decide to spend that money? Do you, you've got a budget. You've got a production company. You say you think it's the largest production company for creators. Are you greenlighting pitches? Are you killing ideas? Yeah, yeah. We have um, our chief content officer, Nikki Levy. She comes from a traditional studio background. The the guy we've got running uh, the, the studios team right now comes to us. He was a producer with Marvel Studios. So like people who understand creator stuff, but also understand a more traditional Hollywood system. We did that specifically because the, the way YouTubers work is very fast, loose, get it done so that I can ship the video tomorrow. And Hollywood will spend a year or two years making something and it spends half that time in post-production and then half the budget goes into marketing, et cetera. We needed to get to a point where we could have a little bit more thought put into how do we develop the content? How can we be useful to the creator in developing content? Where can we add value? And so now we, we have a, a structure. It, for a long time, it was kind of me and my gut and looking at something, this would work, this wouldn't work. And frankly, for the, for the first stretch of time, it was just CuriosityStream giving us funding for originals. So we got to play around a lot. And as long as they would see an increase in conversions, it was worth it to them to throw money at things. So they were paying our marketing budget and our content budget. You can see why we like them. Now, the new stage of, of life, we have a much better understanding of the world. We have more access to marketing tools of our own. We have audience awareness. We have audience affinity. We have a brand that people recognize and appreciate. And we have an understanding of how to develop the content. So we've taken on, over time, more and more of this ourselves. And we've had to build a machine specifically for looking at projects and, and making a decision. Is this something that the creator is going to be proud of? Is this something that they can promote that will lead users over here? I think the secret sauce, the secret ingredient, the thing that is, if you look at the Netflix model or the Apple TV plus model, or even the Spotify model, the thing that's different about what we do, the magic of it is that the audience is invested in the creator. They want the creator to succeed. Nobody signs up and pays for Netflix because they're personally invested in the financial security of the Stranger Things kids. <laughs> Nobody is paying for Netflix because they want to make sure that Dave Chappelle's making money. Nobody cares about Tom Hiddleston's uh, private life and his financial security and uh, whether or not he's able actually, to keep I, making shows. I think there's a lot of people who care about Tom Hiddleston's private life. Yeah. Yeah. They care who he's dating. They don't care how his 401k is shaking out, whether or not he's going to be able to retire. He's not out there promoting Disney Plus so that like, hey, thanks for subscribing. Uh, be sure to click the link below. It really helps the, the channel. Like, it's not a thing. Uh, I mean, to an extent, people will care about celebrities, but it's not the same. Like, do you know Paul Rudd's wife's name? No, I, but I, I'm horrible at celebrities. There are people listening I don't, to this. I don't even know if he's married. <laughs> who just like said the name, like instinctively. Like that Hollywood has built itself on parasocial relationships with celebrities for a long time. 
Right. I think that those relationships, I think there's fame relationships, but parasocial, and there's going to be some of that. And there's going to be like Us Magazine, like here's, I don't know, Kate Hudson buying groceries. Look, they're just like us. I don't know why I picked her. Uh, but th- <laughs> there's there's like a celebrity attachment. I think feeling personally invested in somebody else's story. I think parasocial is all about feeling like that person is a character in your story. Brad Pitt is a character in the world story. I don't feel like I know him or I'm friends with him. I know things about him because I've read them in magazines. But when I'm a fan of, I don't know, Thomas Frank, and I watch his videos every week, and I learn about his life, I feel more deeply connected. And people, the audience is signing up for Nebula and they're staying signed up for Nebula because of that connection. They get invested in the the projects because they're invested in the creator. Do you worry about the flip side of that? Because one thing I hear from creators all the time is they're burned out, that the audience, especially when they start paying them in different ways, the expectations go up, the desire for constant content, the need to open the doors to your entire life, ratchet up is you become more successful in that way. And that leads to burnout. Do you think about that with the, the Nebula group? I mean, you, you look through our roster, it's mostly nerds making uh, explainer <laughs> videos and video essays. It's a little bit less, um, you know, look at me. And they, the, the folks who are going to burn out, you look at like um, he who shall not be named, Logan Paul. He was making daily or whatever vlogs where it's just cameras following him around and he had to constantly be on. For our audience, They go watch a Marvel movie, they come home and they think about it, they argue with their friends on the internet, and then they sit down and they write an essay and they record that into a microphone. Or they go out and they build something interesting and they show off what they've built. It's less follow me around with a camera, look at me, look at me vlogger stuff, and a little bit more thoughtful. And that that sounds dismissive of other kinds of content, I don't mean it that way. It's more intentionally, intellectually driven and less um, celebrity driven. And I think that matters, at least for us. So I don't see that kind of burnout from creators. I do definitely see burnout. Uh, Most of the folks we work with are in their 20s, and this is their first or second job, and they just don't have structures in place. So a lot of what we try to do is help them build structures so that they can take some time off, or they can get an outside editor working on their videos so they're not spending 100 hours a week making a, a video to get cranked out so that the algorithm will be happy or that they're meeting sponsor deadlines or whatever building businesses rather than just successful channels. Do you think this model is applicable to entertainment celebrity? I mean, that's the bigger side of YouTube, right? I don't know, honestly. Um, I've been chatting with some bigger celebrity type YouTubers about this, trying to get my head around how their businesses work. It's unclear to me exactly how the pieces fit together. Uh, A friend of mine, Dr. Mike, uh, not somebody we work with, but a friend, uh, he just did a tour where he went around the East Coast of the, the country doing a live stage show as, you know, in the Internet's, uh, was it People Magazine's Sexiest Doctor Alive, getting up on stage and doing, you know, game shows and sort of uh, sketch comedy style things for an audience of people who truly love him. And uh, watching him interact with fans and thinking about the way those tickets would sell or the kinds of people who would go to that sort of show, is that something that would apply to creators like the folks we work with? What are the needs? What are the demands? And what are the the, the challenges? There are, I, I work with people who have audiences in the millions who can walk down any street in the world and not get recognized because they're not really on-camera talent. And I have friends who, if we're out anywhere, we get stopped constantly. And I, I don't yet fully understand what it must be like to have to deal with that second 
set of problems. So I don't know. I, I can't really say. Have you thought about expansion in that direction? Yeah, I think that as Nebula becomes a more interesting story to the world and not just this niche of creators, we will we'll need to expand. My big picture vision dream for Nebula is it should be the home of independent creator content, high quality curated independent creator content. So I'm not interested in getting every creator in the world to put stuff on Nebula, but there's plenty of thoughtful, at least intellectually sincere and passionate content out there that would be a great fit. So I'm not saying add tens of thousands of channels, but hundreds, maybe, maybe thousands. Hard to say. If the direction of the platform is that, then we have to, at some point, start appealing more to the kinds of creators who might have different relationships with their audience or a different relationship with their content or a different relationship with their platforms. And even for me personally, or the the job that I have, the more understanding I can have of, of what the story, the experience of being uh, an online content creator, what that, what that experience is, that's a good thing for me. We need to take a quick break, but when I come back, I had to ask about Web3. I'm sorry, I had to do it. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back with Dave Wiskus. You recently launched classes. I feel like I'm going to ask this question. And it's going to sound bonkers, but I love it already. This. You recently launched classes. I've had a number of people on the show talk about creators with me, and they immediately bring up Web three and NFTs. <laughs> and I would, this is I told you I was going to. Sound I love it. Uh, and I put that all in the same bucket, which is right. We've just described this in, incredibly complex revenue model because. In many cases, the asset itself is not saleable directly. Like you can't sell a YouTube video. You got to have something to sell. 
And for whatever reason, the market has decided that classes are a thing you can just pay for. And for whatever reason, the market has decided that NFTs are a thing you can pay an increasingly smaller amount of money for. <laughs> but it's a thing you can sell directly sure. to the consumer as opposed to having this, you know, this architecture of revenue streams around an asset that you can't sell. Is that how you think about classes? Like we just need to open up a thing where we're selling more things directly. Is that how you might think about NFTs? If we're going to talk about crypto, am I allowed to swear? Yeah. Go nuts. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Okay. So <laughs> the problem with crypto is what problem does this solve? I, I think the answer is that it's just something to sell. I, honestly, at this point. Right, right. If you're if you're selling a class, you're teaching someone something. If you're selling access to a video, you're selling time and entertainment. You sell crypto, you're selling nothing. It doesn't even solve the problem it claims to solve. It's a file. It's a it's a JSON entry on the blockchain that points to a file on somebody else's server. It doesn't even do the thing it pretends to do, let alone solve a problem that anyone actually has. I find it increasingly frustrating watching influencers promote crypto bullshit. I find it increasingly frustrating watching people who I regard as being very smart buying into this bizarre ass Ponzi scheme <laughs> where all you're doing, all you're really doing. Remember that that all that shit I said earlier about what you're really selling is access to the trust that the audience has in the creator. If you want to sell all of your trust up front, yeah, go nuts with crypto. It is not going to age well. It's already not aging well. If we want to make sure that nobody ever takes us seriously, that the creator economy is a tech bro flash in the pan that fizzles out, this is the best way to do it. I find it horrifying, genuinely. It's it's perplexing, it's confounding, and it's horrifying that, that smart people are doing this. And I, I think, honestly, it comes down to not even malice, necessarily. I think it's inexperience. Like I said, a lot of these people are younger, and I don't mean that in a dismissive way. They're incredibly smart, but they don't have the kinds of experience and context in especially the tech industry. Mm -hmm. A lot of YouTubers, a lot of big name YouTubers are not from the tech industry. And if you've been in the, the tech industry for a while, as, a, as I think you have been, I remember lots of things that were too big to fail. I remember AOL. I remember <laughs> Yahoo. I remember Friendster. I remember MySpace. All of these things were too big to fail. Remember Orkut? All of these things were... Um, Orkut was huge in Brazil. I just want to put that out there. Um, no, but let me... I, look, I'm very skeptical of crypto. I think I, all of our listeners know that. I'm just... Abstractly, what I'm saying is I can identify one problem it solved, which is artists had something to sell in a way that they cannot sell songs anymore or they cannot sell movies anymore, right? All that stuff has been wrapped up into streaming subscription bundles. And so if you say I can sell a thing, that's a very powerful tool to give an artist, whether or not the tool exists or has longevity or is technically real. Um, mm -hmm. Right. And I, I'm just putting that next to classes. Cause I, we also interview creators in the show and they, they say, okay, we, we sell classes. That's actually the revenue and the stuff we do on the platforms is marketing to sell the classes. Right. And that is becoming a very common model. And if I'm just, yeah. the comparison I'm making is you need something to sell directly. And I'm wondering if classes were, okay, this is a thing that we, you like that adds value that you can sell directly. Uh, yes and no. Generally speaking, I, I think you're absolutely correct. I think that the creators using the free ad-supported platforms as a way to promote things they own, that is, frankly, the future of the creator economy. The only way this is going to be interesting and sustainable 
The future of the creator economy needs to be owned by the creators. It shouldn't be owned by trillion dollar mega tech companies. It shouldn't be owned by finance bros or tech bros. It should be owned by the creators. And there's going to be lots of sharks in the water and there's going to be lots of big ideas that fizzle out. There's going to be lots of people who try. And I think that as more of the creators themselves try things, the future is more likely to be uh, you start on one platform and then build your own. I think that's a good thing. And there's a an entrepreneurial spirit, I guess, around NFTs that that is healthy. Um, it's the execution that I have a problem with there. People selling classes, most online classes are either the creator is selling one class, like a la carte, you go to my website, buy my class, uh, or like a cohort-based thing where you pay some number of thousands of dollars and I get on a Zoom with 100 people once a week and tell you how smart I am. Uh, most of the cohort-based stuff is highly parasocial creators who are selling the idea that you can be successful like them. These mm -hmm. sort of like Tony Robbins, uh, Tim Ferriss type people uh, where it's it's much more about, look at how successful I am. Don't you want to be like me? People who make YouTube videos about how much money they make, that kind of stuff. Not there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but you know it's, it's a way of doing things. The selling classes a la carte tends to be people who are more, uh, they have professional and lived experience before they became a YouTuber that is applicable to their audience or what the audience wants to do. People like friend of the family, uh, Rick Beato, selling courses on uh, how to train your ear to develop perfect pitch. I think that's one of his classes. Uh, him selling stuff like that, he sells at a, you know, a flat fixed rate. People go, they buy that class. He's very successful. These models work. The other model that isn't really being tested out by creators en masse yet is more of like the, the master class model. A bunch of creators getting together on a platform, building things that are part of a subscription, because for us, Nebula classes is just baked into Nebula. You, if, you, if you sign up for Nebula, you get classes in there as, as part of the deal. It's not an, a, an extra or anything. We did raise the price to account for this, but it's not a separate fee. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's much more of a, we're going to keep adding value to the platform that we've already built and less, how do we come up with a new thing to sell? Because if, when, when I look at who our model for success is on the technology side and this, uh, on the distribution side, I don't really look at YouTube. I look at Apple's philosophies. Apple is an ecosystem company and their purpose for existence, according to their behavior and the, the way they, they tend to model their products is do opinionated things, get you into the ecosystem. And look, if you use an iPad, but you don't use a Mac, that's fine. If you uh, don't sign up for Apple TV Plus, that's fine as long as you're using an iPhone. You know, whatever the thing is, using all of the products isn't necessarily the point. Getting you into the ecosystem and then showing you how great the other stuff is over time and slowly winning you over with the improvement of experience, much more interesting. In that regard, I think Nebula is kind of modeled after like iTunes for nerds. <laughs> You've given us so much time. That's a great place to end it. I have to ask this question though. There's a ton of consolidation in media, everyone's buying everything. Are you thinking of an exit for Nebula? I know you've, you know, you've got the outs. Everyone you know, gets paid if you exit. Are you thinking about a sale or are you in it for the long haul? It's not really up to me. The way that the, the companies are structured, you had asked earlier about decision-making. I have the executive team that I answer to. I have uh, standards 30-something owners that I answer to. I have 160 creators that I answer to, 80 employees that I answer to. 
Curiosity Stream has a minority stake in Nebula. They're a publicly traded company. I have to answer to them. At the end of the day, we have structures in place so that if like, I don't know, some foreign billionaire with blood money came in and wanted to just buy the whole thing up, I might be tempted personally, but I couldn't. Like there's structures in place, like the, the creators that have to sign off on that. Um, or if Mr. Beast came in and wanted to buy it all for the lulls and give it away in a video like a chocolate factory, uh, I couldn't say yes to that. They would have to be voted on. There'd have to be discussions around it. So like we can imagine all sorts of things. Would it be neat for us to be the first creator economy startup to go public? Maybe. There's a ton of bullshit that comes with that, and that might be less exciting. And then are we truly creator-owned at that point? There's a lot of philosophical questions we'd have to ask ourselves. Right now, our operational profit trajectory is great, and we don't really see a need to do that. We don't really see a need to exit. I get plenty of emails from VC people, and they're, they're all very nice. I don't want to you know, throw shade there. But I think that there's plenty of people out there who are looking for opportunities to extract value from creators. We're in a position where our fundamental reason for existence is to add value to creators. And it's hard to imagine what an exit looks like that doesn't hurt the people that we're here to serve. Are you profitable right now on a runway that lets you just keep going forever? Yeah. That's great. I mean, growth trajectory, the growth curve could be anything, right? Maybe if you injected a billion dollars of cash into our bank account, we grow a lot faster or we do bigger and more interesting things and we take over the world and uh, beat Elon to Mars. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) But uh, it's everything comes at a cost. We could take money, but we'd give up control. And so much of what I think makes the machine work is that the creators are running it. I answer to the creators. The platform answers to the creators. And... It, that's not the case for most platforms. YouTube, they don't see themselves, I think, as answering to the creators. They have shareholders. They have their own internal business needs. They're a mega tech company that is a smaller piece of a much bigger mega tech company. So uh, it's it's hard to imagine. And, and I don't think that, that YouTube in particular has anything against the creators. I think that they do a really great job there, but they're still answerable to others. So for us to do the things that we want to do, I, I think we need to keep that accountability. How, whatever happens next, it will have to happen with that accountability maintained. That's great. Dave, it has been so great talking to you. So great meeting you after all these years. Thank you so much for coming on Decoder. It's been so great ranting at you. <laughs> I love it, man. Thanks again to Dave Wiskus for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm Matt Reckless on Twitter. If you really like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. Also, many of you have taken me up on this. If you tweet about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Moreno. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features.